and welcome to CityWire's Funds Fanatic Show. My name's Jeremy Gordon, and I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast and in the studio today by 91 fund manager George Cheveley. George works on two main commodity-focused funds, 91 Global Gold and 91 Global Natural Resources, giving him something of a front-row seat when it comes to inflation hitting four-decade highs around the world. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so, George, you run commodity funds, we might call them, but you're not buying gold itself or, or trying to track the, the oil price, say. What, what are you doing? No, so we're focusing on buying resource equities. Mm-hmm. So these are long-only equity funds. Um, but clearly, um, buying resource equities, you're trying to give people exposure to underlying commodity prices. And we particularly do that, we tend to focus on producing companies. We have a few explorers, but not many, because we want companies who are receiving the prices that you see on the screen today. Okay. And, you know, broadly, how would you characterize the relationship between resource equities, say miners and and metals? You know, is, is this a linear relationship, the way that the share prices move around? Um, no, there's clearly a close relationship. I mm-hmm. mean, it is their revenue, and clearly that makes it quite volatile. Um, but clearly, w- buying an equity, you are getting exposure to some other factors, shall we say. One is you obviously get um, some leverage. Mm-hmm. That both can be financial leverage if they have debt. It can be operational leverage, depending on what their costs of production are. And I'd even say you get what I call explorational leverage. In other words, they can discover more minerals, metals, oil, whatever. Um, And therefore, that's also a source of potential returns in the equities. Um, So you you have a number of other factors as well as the actual underlying commodity price. Yeah. Um, And one of the keys is actually not getting too distracted by the volatility of prices and really trying to understand what longer term is driving those companies. Okay. Well, that kind of brings me on to something I wanted, to, a kind of basic question I wanted to ask about investing in this space. You know, Are these companies that are in charge of their own destinies or are they sort of hostage to fortune to what happens with commodity prices? Short term, they, they can't do much about the commodity price. That will move around. And certainly, um, you talk to those companies, they're probably not even looking at prices short term other than in their trading functions, etc. Really, but longer term, they're certainly in charge of their own destiny and Mm. certainly should be. And any company that doesn't think it is, I wouldn't want to invest in. Yeah. Um, And clearly, they've got to make good returns on capital. Mm -hmm. And that capital allocation in this sector is absolutely key. And it's one of the key things we look for is firms who have sensible capital allocation policies and can demonstrate either a history of good capital returns or at least show us why they're going to make those returns in the future. Yeah. Capital allocation in layman's terms, what are we talking about there? Is this just companies picking the right projects to pursue? or it, It's really managing. So these are capital intensive industries. Mm-hmm. You know, It costs a huge amount of upfront capital to build mines, build operations, etc., and making those right decisions is very important. And judging when they should be building a project versus when they should be maybe returning capital shareholders, mm. what the right mix is, how they should do that is absolutely key. And, and whether they 
you know, spread the risk in a project, joint venture it, all of these decisions, how they, how they manage it, you know, long term. They're not always going to have great returns on capital because prices will fall in a, in a recession. Those yeah. returns will be subdued. What we're looking for is companies who are better than average, better than their peers over the long term. Mm. OK. And... Um uh, well, how did you end up focusing on this space? Because you, were, you weren't always working in fund management, is that right? No, I started off um, in industry, actually. I started mm -hmm. off um, working for British Steel. I was working down in South Wales, mainly in the tin plate um, area. I spent four years down there. My first proper job, as I call it, was buying tin. Yeah, I think you, you told me before we started recording, you used to be the second biggest buyer of tin in Europe. Yeah, we used to, uh, after the Germans, I think British Steel at the time, we were buying something like a, a grand total of 4,000 tons of tin a year, um, which was, yeah, it was uh, when you just started work, it was quite an interesting job to do. Um, so I started off there. I then worked at a consultancy, um, CRU, um, studying steel markets and then moved into studying copper markets. Um, and then after that, I became an analyst with BHP, um, covering copper, lead, zinc, gold, and silver. And I was really there to understand those markets and, and come up with our long-term prices for the company in, in those markets. Yeah, and, and that was a hugely exciting time. It was right in the super cycle. It was, you know, four, five, six. It was um, prices, you know, rocketing, um, everything changing in the industry, China booming. It was a hugely exciting time. Um, and, and, you know, learnt a lot about, you know, really studying these markets and how they work. And I suppose, so when you moved from working in the industry to in fund, in fund management itself, but focusing on the same industry, well, I mean, what, were there any, what was the most sort of surprising difference? I think the sort of focus on the shorter term, I knew that was going to be, it was going to be a shorter term in, in focus fund in fund management. Um, you're obviously measured on quite short term metrics and sort of, in a way, you know, we're talking about an industry where it's at least 10 years to develop a mine nowadays. Right. Um, so you're investing in companies who are really looking forward 10 years or more. And you're trying to then perform on a shorter term, sort of quarterly, yearly benchmark. And, and sort of trying to marry those two together is quite a challenge. Right. Quite fun in a way. Um, but also, you really got a very different perspective. Um, I think I was also... Probably one of the things that maybe shouldn't have shocked me, but it did, was just um, quite how badly perceived um, resources were, even at the start. People, you know, saw it as a dirty industry. And one, in times almost people saw, why is it relevant, which seemed crazy um, to me. But even, even two, three years ago, we were facing that question. Obviously, today, that's very different. People have sort of, you know, forced to understand that these are critical parts of the supply chain. They are the start of the supply chain. And the resources is very fundamental to the world economy. That might seem obvious to a lot of people, but to many people it wasn't. Right. As in what there was this perception that we can have all this technological advancement without without having to, you know, get the uh, the actual building blocks that enable it to happen. I think so. I, I, I don't quite understand it, but yes, people sort of felt and, and I think you know, I still have people today who say, Well, can't we just recycle all this metal? You know, why why do we need to mine anymore? Surely there's plenty of metal and and you know, you have to point out that yeah, but a lot of that metal is locked up for many years. I said, you know, look at New York, how much steel is in those skyscrapers, it's been there a hundred years. You know, a lot of this material is locked up, it doesn't come back out. And in a growing world you, you will need more, clearly. Mm. Okay, well, maybe that's something we can touch on later. Um, 
So mentioning the slight boom and bust nature of this space, you know, if I told you three years ago that we were going to have one, a global pandemic, and then a commodity boom, uh, it seems, what would your reaction have been? Is that something you could have expected? Or Yeah, no, did I? I, I, think, I think in the midst of the pandemic, um, predicting um, a commodity boom immediately would have been a very strong call, though certainly we... Um, certainly we're quick to realize that, that it, things have changed and people were going to use materials. Having said that, three, four years ago, I was predicting commodity prices to go up, clearly, because I'd seen just this huge underinvestment in new supply, which really began after people cut their CapEx budgets back in fourteen fifteen. And this is a cyclical industry. And once people have cut back, you know at some point prices are going to have to react because there isn't enough new supply being built coming through. So um, if I'd said a pandemic would have caused a commodities boom, I'm not sure I would have predicted that. But I was certainly expecting the next five years or so to see higher prices. Mm. OK. And so, well, prices for I'm certainly no expert. Uh, in any of this. But um, prices for most commodities are actually always surprisingly volatile, for example, in energy markets. But can, can you give some insider context on the scale of what we've been se seeing? I mean, maybe energy markets are a good place to start. How unusual a dynamic is this? No, I mean, look, the last three years have been extraordinary. We've seen, you know, oil prices essentially go negative right. and then back up to 120. Um, you know, we've seen massive swings in metals prices. Um, we've seen lithium prices go up 10 times. So that's you know, a key ingredient in batteries. In batteries. So we've seen massive moves in, in a lot of these commodities. Um, and that, that causes a lot of volatility, clearly. It causes people to worry about, you know, whether they can invest in the space. I think, obviously, people look at, you know, obvious things like they say, oh, things revert to mean and therefore things have got to come down. Um, it, it, it is, it becomes a very, in that volatility, it can become very confusing about where is the long run price, you know, what, what is a normal price in, in for these commodities. But actually, if you just go back to fundamentals, you look at what it's costing to produce this stuff, you know, how much demand you expect going forward, you can start to get cut through that and see what, what would be a reasonable long-term price. And that's actually key if you're going to invest in this space to anchor back to those fundamental numbers. You know, in a sense, your long-term price is always wrong. Prices are either above it or below it. Mm -hmm. and, and when they go through it, they go through fast. But, but actually coming back to those numbers, coming back to the fundamentals is absolutely key when you're investing in, in resource equities and commodities because, um, a, you know, it's all around avoiding distraction. And, right. and in that volatility, it's very easy to get distracted by high and low prices. Right. I mean, th this is a space where, you know, what we're discussing can quickly be overtaken by events. I think since the middle of the summer, even a lot of metals prices have come back quite a lot. But I suppose, you know, could you give a broad overview in your markets, whether that's in energy, in, in key metals or in agricultural commodities? You know, where, <laughs> where, where do you think um, still looks um, undervalued, if that's the right way to put it? I'll make a general comment first, which yeah. is we're actually looking at a number of markets at reasonably or quite low inventories. Okay. And, and the importance of that is that really creates um, a lot of the volatility because, you know, if, if you've got very little inventory and the market looks like it will be oversupplied, 
then there's no problem. Prices can come down, people are relaxed, they're like, I don't need to buy early because I can see there's plenty of supply coming through. Mm. If, however, you've got low inventories and you think there's a deficit coming, yeah. then you start to order more, you start to buy more, and prices have to go, you know, quickly go higher because you're trying to get to a point where you substitute or thrift, et cetera, and lower that demand. So this is maybe what we've been seeing with, say, gas. We're seeing it with gas, we're seeing it in copper, we're seeing it in a number of commodities, agricultural, fertilizers, etc. We're seeing very volatile prices because the market's trying to work out, are we in surplus or deficit? Mm. And on the supply side, it sees disrupted supply because of the war, because of many other factors, politics around the world. Um, affecting a lot of these commodities. And therefore, it says, oh, we haven't got enough supply, we're going to deficit, we've got no inventory, and prices start moving higher. And then the next week, they say, oh, it's okay, we're going to recession, demand's going to be much lower than we thought, and therefore, actually, we're going to be well supplied, so then prices come back down again. And every day, the market's trying to decide which way we're going, and that's what's creating this volatility, because the market can't quite work out mm. what the supply demand should be, and because we have low inventories, that really matters. Yeah. Okay. And what about, in, and it, so that's a kind of generalised um, Characteristic. I mean, let's say, you know, in the key example of um, oil and gas, you know, are these high prices sustainable? Um, I suppose that, that could have multiple meanings, but as it, can it really stay so elevated? I think, I mean, clearly we're, we're really looking at what happens in Europe this winter when it comes mm. to gas prices, etc. I mean, it looks likely that Russia has, will, and will continue to restrict supplies, if not cut them off completely. It's, it's, it's definitely appears to be using that uh, to put pressure on Europe. Um, is Europe going to shut down? I don't think so. I, I, mean, I think we already see industrial demand falling. You know, stocks have been built. They're switching to other forms of energy. But it is going to be tough, and I think prices certainly could remain elevated and certainly volatile through that period. Yeah. Um, I think outside of that, if you look broadly around the world, we, the, we are short of energy. Um, or not short, but we're tight energy. So it's not just around Europe. We're seeing in other markets, we're seeing energy, maybe it's a knock-on effect. But generally, if you add up you know, oil, gas, coal, all, all the different forms of, of fossil fuels plus renewables as well, we don't appear to have a huge amount of, you know, spare energy, shall we say. Mm. And therefore, that seems to predict that prices will remain maybe not at super high levels, but higher than they have been historically. Right. OK, that kind of brings me on to something else I want to ask about, which is windfall taxes. So, you know, in, in the Global Natural Resources Fund, in your top 10 holdings, for example, you've got Shell, BP companies which actually have most of their operations outside the UK. So perhaps the hit from the, the, the oil windfall tax, the, the energy windfall tax isn't as much as people would have, would have thought. But in the UK, for example, given gas prices are such a dominant driver of inflation, and you know those companies are returning huge amounts to shareholders and dividends and share buybacks, it's, it's quite an easy case to make for a windfall tax, isn't it? Do you, do you, do you, do you agree with that? I can understand why why politicians' papers talk about it, uh, mm. and some would certainly push for it. It's a hugely popular thing to do. I mean, rationally, as an economist, it seems odd to me if you're going to essentially tax suppliers, therefore discourage them investing in new supply, and you're going to use that extra revenue to essentially support demand, 
by um, subsidizing consumers by knocking money off their energy bills. So essentially in a tight market, you're essentially disincentivizing supply and encouraging demand. That seems to me a very odd thing to do. Okay. Um, it, it doesn't make sense, frankly. If you want to balance the market, you need to do the opposite to some extent. So uh, whilst it's a popular move, economically it seems crazy to me to, to be um, doing that. But I can absolutely understand as a politician when you know people are in trouble, you've clearly got to come up with some solution. The only other thing I've got to remember, these companies are making a lot of money, and because of that, they're paying more tax already. I mean, we and so again, you know, one-off windfall taxes to me is slightly an omission. Your tax regime is wrong, or you've got the wrong tax policy, and and just to sort of put a sticking band over by employing a windfall tax again, yes, it might be popular in the short term, but it it doesn't solve any problems. Mm. And, and you've got to remember, these companies will be paying more tax as it is because they are making more money. Yeah. So I. I think it's a hugely complicated thing. It's clearly very political. It's not just around economics. But as I say, from an economic point of view, it seems irrational to me. Okay. Well, you, I suppose, you, you know, you've sort of recognised there that it's, it's, it's a response to the, you know, the hardship people are feeling as well. But I suppose what would your solution be instead then? Oh, that's a difficult one. I think, I think you have to look at the, your, your tax regime longer term. Um, and you have to decide if, if you've got the right level of tax. Um, but I think you have to look more broadly about whether you have the right level of tax to supply the services y- your population require. Yeah. I think just picking on one sector as it makes money. I mean, you know, three years ago, these companies were losing lots of money. Um, should we be, you know, picking on technology companies next because they've made a lot of money? It just seems to me rather mishmash. I think you've got to look at setting a level of tax and, and really a functioning economy. For companies to function, they need certainty and they need to understand what regime they're operating in and then they can make long-term investments yeah. and, and should then encourage new supply. Mm. Okay, well, I suppose conti- continuing on that point, um, some of the uh, political messaging around the, the windfall tax, I suppose, to the companies um, rather rather than to um, to voters, has been, um, you know, it's a kind of quid pro quo. Uh, you know, it, 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 if we're not going to kind of ramp this tax up even more, you need to invest more. Um, and uh, you know, with, with say BP and Shell, of course, they have ramped up their their um, clean energy or energy transition spending a lot. But it's still a fraction of their their oil and gas spending, isn't it? What 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 do you think about that kind of balance? Yeah, I think this. I mean, really, we're moving on to the energy transition, and this is. Mm. I mean, this is the key theme, I think, for the next ten years, if not longer. Yeah. And clearly, what we've seen is. I mean, what we've seen over the last few years is. Um, I think there was a view if we discourage investment in fossil fuels. Mm. And, and we should encourage and push that investment into renewables. And that's how we manage this transition. You know, economically, the market should work it out that we don't want fossil fuels, we want renewables. It hasn't worked. Right. And, and there's a lot of reasons why it hasn't worked. But I think, I, I think we have to admit that we need governments and, and we need policy to support this transition. And, you know, if you talk to a lot of companies and you say, I've been at three or four conferences in the last year where people have said, what is the biggest hurdle um, to investment in renewables? And pretty much everyone, every company comes back and says planning policy. And that's globally. 
you know, you just can't get the permission to develop. You know, there's always somebody who's opposing a wind farm or a solar farm. They don't like it. And, and actually getting governments to, to plan that. You know, if you're trying to get connections to the grid, you know, yeah, you can get a connection, but it's not going to be ready till 28. You know, those, those sort of things we have to look at if we're going to make renewable energy work quickly. Mm. You know, so it's not just about market forces, you know, switching money from one area to another. We need government policy to be aligned with that. Yeah. And, and government needs to be very central to that. But, uh, but I think it's, it's around the policy, those areas they can really help. OK. And I, spo I suppose, um, you know, within that, if policy allows... For, for these companies, say for Shell and BP, I mean, do you kind of draw lines in the sand where you say, OK, if these companies don't hit their targets by, say, 2025, I think BP wants 40 percent of its capex to be on green stuff, basically. Do you kind of draw lines on the sand yourself as a portfolio manager and say, OK, that they have to hit that or that's going to be at for us? No, it's a good question and one we discuss all the time. Oh, about, really? about, yeah, I mean, you know, what what is what is good enough, what is acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly um, capital spend is an important part of that, how much capital they're allocating. Um, it is a difficult one because companies come back and say, well, we're not sure what the returns will be. It's very uncertain in many cases whether you know the returns will be good. And they say, you want us to make good returns on capital. If we push it all this way, can we be guaranteed? It's, mm -hmm. it's an uncertain area. But I think we definitely want to see companies making those right decisions and making some headway. And by the way, you know, as a fossil fuel company, it doesn't mean to say building renewables is the only solution. There's other things you can do as a company. You know, some of them will say, I'm, I'm not you know, qualified to build wind farms, solar farms. Others would say, it's all big engineering, I can do that. Different companies have different solutions. Um, and, and that's not bad. I mean, that's good in a way. That's what we like. We want to see companies having different ways of managing this transition. Yeah. Because we're not, we're not sure which will work. Mm. Okay. Maybe a kind of final point on this same, this same topic. Um, Glencore is your top holding in the um, Global, Global Natural Resources Fund. Uh, and, you know, this is a group that maybe has stuck with coal um, longer than many of its rivals. And indeed, I, I read an, you know, quite an extraordinary um, stat. So profits doubled to a record in the first half. And I think just the coal division, you know, was responsible for more profit than the whole group was the same time a year, year ago. Um, you know, that, that seems in incredible to me. Um, you know, are, are you happy with, with, its, with, with that company's coal exposure? So we've invested in Glencore on and off over the years. Yeah. And actually... Um, this holding we have now, we, we began um, really investing in. So we didn't own any Glencore really through prior to and through the pandemic. Right. And, and we started investing um, at the end of 2020 following their strategy day. Okay. And they came out at that strategy day and they said, we have to have a transition plan. Mm. Um, they said, unlike a number of our competitors, we're not going to sell off our coal assets and had put them into the private sector, when that's not going to reduce any emissions at all. We're going to commit to running down our coal production so that essentially we have zero coal production before 2050, uh, and we will deplete, as mines deplete, we will close them. We're, we're not going to um, you know, recover all the resource as reserves deplete, that's what we're gonna do. Essentially, it was run down responsibly. 
And to me, that made a huge amount of sense. You can't just stop mining coal today. I mean, we can see already we're, we're short energy. Um, but obviously, if you're spending huge amounts of money to extend, expand coal production, that's clearly not in, you know, in, in relation to net zero is that's not going to work. Yeah. So a strategy which actually sort of takes it head on and says, we're going to own this, we're going to run it down responsibly, we're going to manage it responsibly and look after all those other stakeholders, communities, etc. involved. Mm. To me, made a lot of sense. It's a tough strategy because clearly people are going, not going to like you for mining coal. It's one that every day you're going to have to, you know, struggle through. But to me, that made a lot of sense. Um, and it also, to me, meant that funds then could actually engage with them around that and see if they're doing it properly, monitor them, and, and you know, there was a proper plan. And that was a plan that then later in 21, they got voted on by shareholders. Mm -hmm. So it was a company I felt that had really come changed massively from three, four years ago when they had no plan. And suddenly they really embraced the, the idea. Mm -hmm. and, and that, to me, was very important. What I note this year is BHP have given up trying to sell their um, energy coal assets in, in Australia um, because they couldn't get value, and they've actually committed to run them down responsibly. Um, they haven't said it in the same way, but essentially it's a, a similar strategy um, because actually spinning them out, selling them off was not viable or, or they couldn't get the value they required. So we are seeing some other companies do that. Okay. And, and I, I think in I, I think as we've seen problems with energy supply, the realization you know Germany increasing its coal use that that the transition doesn't mean you just stop fossil fuels. We're going to need them for at least another ten or twenty years. You know I think in that context it, the strategy makes more sense every day. Mm. Okay, um, I suppose you know coming back onto the um, energy transition and, and miners maybe. What what are some of the the, the key metals? Um, and miners that, that you're exposed to that should really benefit from you know the changes to the way we, we need to use energy? I mean, the obvious one, which um, you can't get away from, and, and when you're investing in miners, you have to come back to the whole time is copper. Right. I mean, if we're going to electrify the world, what carries electricity is copper. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's clear that, that copper demand will remain strong. Um, you know, you can do the numbers. If you look at renewables, they use masses electric cars. They all use a lot more copper than, um, you know, fossil fuel, mm. um, ICE cars, etc. So, um, and, and sometimes I get people asking me about rare earths. They're asking about what lithium companies they should be involved in, which are all very interesting sectors. But I, I have to remind them that, you know, copper's um, a much bigger area, a much bigger sector, and just as much um, benefits from, from this move. Beyond that, of course, you have to remember aluminium is a big beneficiary as well um, because as, as you build more vehicles, as you build more infrastructure, aluminium will be required. Mm. And actually, there's a very good case to say it's going to be difficult for copper demand to keep up with requirements. And if you substitute away from copper, you tend to substitute to aluminium for a number of um, uses. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think aluminium also benefits from this build-out because I'm not sure there is enough copper coming on over the next 10 years to, to supply it all. And interestingly, then you look at something like steel, which a lot of people see as you know, a, a bad metal because there's lots of CO2 produced in producing steel. But a windmill is 70% steel. Um, you know, it is a massive infrastructure build. You know, renewables is all about infrastructure and building infrastructure and building new infrastructure. And, and the basis of most infrastructure is steel. 
And, and that, I think, uh, you know, I see steel demand as remaining very solid. People obviously worry about construction in China and mm. other areas. But if you look in the Western world, you know, I think I think we see huge benefits from steel and, and a very interesting story there about how the steel industry decarbonizes which is going to be a huge challenge for the industry because it's pretty tough to do it economically. Yeah. Um, we're starting to see green steel. People use hydrogen. SSAB are one of the leaders in this. Um, but they have a natural advantage of stranded power and high-grade iron ore on their doorstep. But, but good, they should be using those advantages. But, but it's definitely an area. And again, it's a massive sector. So as an investor, I've got lots of opportunities there. You know, I can, yeah, I can talk to you about lithium and it's hugely exciting and growth in lithium is enormous and has surprised everybody really over the last couple of years. But it is quite abundant and it's a light metal, so a little lithium goes a long way. Um, and, and essentially, you know, the size of the lithium market will become the size of the nickel market, which are, are interesting, definitely one we would follow. But if I look at the number of pure nickel companies I want to get involved in, there's two or three. Just to be clear, is, is that due to the link with cars then? Yeah. Sort of catalytic I mean, converters no, versus batteries? Or? Yeah, I mean, lithium is in whatever battery you choose, you're going to be using lithium. Mm. Um, so you need lithium in any battery right. technology, um, and not least because it's light. Mm. Um, so it's not going to add huge amounts of weight to the car in the battery. And, and therefore, we've seen massive demand growth in lithium from electric vehicles, and, and we continue to see that, and it's continuing to dominate that. But as I say, even on the most aggressive forecasts, the size of the lithium market or the value of the lithium market 10 years' time mm. is dwarfed by steel and copper markets, say. Yeah. So the number of investments you can make in that space is going to be quite limited. And, and sometimes I go, again, don't get distracted by all these small, interesting, you know, materials. You know, where I can add value and make money is getting it right in, in the big sectors yeah. in my space and getting which steel companies are going to win, which copper companies, et cetera. Maybe if we can wrap up this section with a, a bit on performance. So, you know, your, your, your recent performance has been very strong, say, on the Global Natural Resources Fund, you know, annual, annualized returns of 16% a year. Um, which is which is above about 11% for the benchmark, um, but I suppose what what I want to ask is you know how do you how do you balance that or how do you communicate with investors between these you know very strong periods uh, where commodity prices are on the up and, and you, you can make great returns versus um, you know say I mean you mentioned you start you started in fund management around 2005 right again there was 2007 sorry again kind of you know at the peak of a boom maybe, and then there's another bust and it can be maybe a painful decade investing in this space. How, how, how do you balance that or how do you deal with that as a fund manager? No, I, well, I mean, um, you know, we, we make investors aware it's a volatile space yeah. and, and they, if you look historically, you can see that and, mm. and there's no point hiding it. It is cyclical. The way we look at it is you, you do have to look at it on the longer term. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the large mining companies over a 30, 40 year period, their total returns um, match up to some of the best quality companies. Mm -hmm. Now they're way more volatile. They obviously massively outperformed between 2001 and 2011. Yeah. And massively underperformed between 11 and 15 um, when we had the oversupply, et cetera. But if you look through, again, if you look through the volatility and look at it as a long-term holding, 
they they provide they can provide good returns over the long term. Mm. And more importantly, they actually provide quite often a very differentiated return. Right. So, I mean, you've zigging when others are zagging. So, you look at the last 20 years, the SP, for instance, was flat 2000, 2010. Um, resources were in a super cycle and were up massively over that period. Between 10 and 20, um, resources went down to 15, rebounded but ended up pretty flat on that decade, whereas yeah. the S&P motored on you know, upwards. The two over 20 years, not similar returns, but completely different um, out, you know, a performance signature, really. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that is interesting. So you know, if you can take a view on these longer term and say, well, I know these materials required, I, I know resources, and look at it as a part of a much bigger portfolio, um, then I think the volatility, you know, can be lived with. Yeah. And uh, and then simply, you know, if it, if it shrunk because it's had a bad period, then add. And if it's a much bigger part of your portfolio because it's outperformed, then maybe you take profits. I yeah. mean, it's that. But I think, I, I think people who try and time the cycles and are either out or in, I think those are the people who can quite often be disappointed because it's the same with gold as well and resources generally. They tend to move very quickly when they move, yeah. and, and therefore trying to time everything is, is I would say, probably very difficult. Mm. Okay, o- on gold um, this year we've had, you know, of course, Russia invading Ukraine, inflation pretty much everywhere at its highest since about 1980, uh, and, and all these tensions um, over Taiwan. Uh, and despite that, you know, the gold price has actually kind of sagged recently. Have, have you been surprised by that? Um, not really. I, I, I would say, I mean, in a sense, obviously, gold hit a peak um, in August following the pandemic. Yeah. Um, we then came back down. We obviously got back near that peak on the outbreak of war. Yeah. Um, so a very sort of knee-jerk reaction. And people go, oh, gold's now, you know, below gold 1,800. Gold. It's, it's still a good price for gold. And in fact, if you look at the last, you know, two years since really the pandemic, gold has essentially gone sideways around 1800. We've gone up to 2000, we've been down to 1700 or so, but we've really been around 1800, which is not a bad price for gold historically, remains a very good price. And, and, And people talk about, you know, the uncertainty and war and inflation, definitely they're supporting gold, but on the other side, we've got a very aggressive rate rises from central Mm. banks, particularly the Fed. Um, which clearly holds against it. And and frankly, this year, and, and the one thing you need to look at over the last few months for all commodities is the dollar. Um, strong dollar has suppressed commodities. Um, as soon as the dollar peaked mid-July and came off a bit, commodities rallied. We've, we've seen a very close correlation between dollar and commodities. Uh, my own view is that, that, that for a trader it is an interesting correlation because when it's working, it works very well. Uh, and then it stops working, right? Because other fundamentals will override it. So, and and I think it's also one of those relations I tend to find works when the market is uncertain about fundamentals. It's not quite sure which way prices are going. So it's almost like I'll just trade it versus the dollar. So we're in a situation where a strong dollar has suppressed some commodity prices, particularly gold. But essentially, gold, you know, is down. I think it's around two or three percent this year which compared to a lot of equities and most asset classes is still pretty good. Right. It's acted as a safe haven, you would say. Okay, it's not been up a lot. Mm. Um, if you're holding gold in euros, pounds, yen, you're probably at record levels. 
Yeah. You know, it's provided a great hedge um, if you're in any of those other currencies, not dollar. So I think it's worked. I think where it's been disappointed is on the equity side. And I right. run go equities. We've seen the equities fall a lot more. Now, they tend to be two to three times leverage. So if gold moves 1%, the equities will move 2 or 3%. Um, so gold down, I think we're down 2 or 3%. We should be down sort of 6 to 10%, I would say. And the equities are down 20 mm. Now, um, I think they're oversold. I, I think they have overreacted. But I would certainly agree that cost inflation has impacted. And, and that, I think, when you come back to the inflation argument, people say, oh, you know, inflation's good for gold. It's good for these. You've got to remember the companies benefit from inflation in the commodities they're producing, if it's oil or copper, et cetera. But if you're a gold company, you're exposed to that oil inflation. You know, your, your costs of mining are going up. And so unless gold reacts very positively, you, you do have a cost inflation. I think the equities have overreacted. I think people have said, oh, you know, inflation's too bad. We've certainly seen a lot of disruption from COVID still this year in mining, right. which I think is now easing um, in many areas. And I think we will see production improve in the second half of the year and costs come down as a result. But yeah, it's been a tough year for equities and, and a disappointing one from their point of view. I think gold itself is doing its job, really. Mm, okay. Um, maybe final question for you, George. Fund managers often do, or, or they, you know, maybe before the pandemic, often do company site visits. I imagine f f for you, some of those visits might be more colourful, more interesting, more fun flung, uh, far flung than in many industries. What, what, what have, what's been, you know, the most surprising or illuminating? Any particularly stand out? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I like to do sort of one or two site visits a year. I okay. certainly don't insist on seeing every mine. I yeah. could spend my life traveling around the world and, and particularly to very remote places. Um, and I say to clients, I say one of the reasons I do site visits is to remind myself how hard it is right. mining and resources generally. You know, when you get to remote places, just everything's a lot harder. I guess if I think back... Um, I think going to the Pilbara, it was actually Rio. I went on a site visit many years ago to their iron ore operations. But just seeing the Pilbara and the scale That's of those operations in, in yeah. Australia, Western Australia is where obviously BHP, Fortescue, Rio have their major iron ore hubs. Yeah. Um, these are massive operations and, and the scale of, of it all is incredible. And just how much material they're moving, and and the train lines, etc. It's 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 a massive logistics exercise more than anything. Um, the other one I particularly remember, I guess, is I did get the chance to go and visit Glencore's operations in uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, so I visited Katanga and Mutanda, and that was a real eye opener. They're clearly a, a lot of focus now because they're big cobalt as well as copper producers and mines. But actually visiting that region was was a real eye-opener in the way they operate. Actually, in some ways, how different it was to the perception I had from outside. Which is um, very negative. Very negative indeed. But actually watching, seeing those operations, how they're being run. I mean, just seeing the history. I mean, these these have been mines for decades. You know, some of these, the, the sort of Katanga is a museum of mining equipment. Um, you know, and sometimes that's an issue, I would say. But um it, it, it was just a really, really interesting visit um, and really one that I think has, you know, sort of helped uh, as, as DRCs become more focused on people look at the cobalt situation and all those issues. Having actually been there really helps you frame it and, you know, understand, I think, 
exactly what is what is going on and what is possible and, and what isn't happening. So, you know, people talk about child labor. Clearly, it happens in DRC, but it's not something the major miners are involved in and, and clearly wouldn't be. Um, and, and to sort of, you know, I mean, there's been reports on it and you can see why it's happening and where it's happening, but it's obviously not in these major operations. So just understanding the context of that and how things, I mean, it's obviously a short visit. You can't fully understand it, but it definitely helps you put these things in perspective. Okay. So basically, you know, what you saw was, you know, clearly it's a very complex area to operate in, but, you know, what you saw was was companies trying to act as re responsibly. Basically. Absolutely, yeah. No, and, you know, it's. I, I think it sometimes, again, I mean, it, most companies, not all, and, and there have been bad examples, and I, certainly they need, you know, in some places they need to get better, but most companies understand you have to keep your local population and locals happy or at least, you know, um, you have to behave responsibly because that's where you're operating. You can't move that mine. You have to operate. You have to have a license to operate, as we used to say, in that area. And therefore, the idea you're, you're going to act terribly in those areas is, is just it's not sustainable in the broader sense. And, and companies understand that. Then they are trying to do the right thing, not always do it. And there are definitely issues and problems. But it is hugely complicated. And, and sometimes people like to simplify it and say, this was bad, this was good. It's never that easy. And when you visit these operations, you can understand the complexity. Okay. Well, on that complex note, I think probably uh, time to wrap up. So, well, George, th thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. Really interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much. Fantastic. And last thing to say is thanks very much uh, to everyone for listening. Please look out for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts soon.